0: the time change and the nasty weather out there. So I have no idea what this phrase means, but kudos to you all. Um, My name's Jamie. I'm one of the pastors here. Glad to have you guys in this space. Thanks for bringing the church into this auditorium this morning and into that kids wing as well. I'm excited to to jump in this morning. If you're new and you're wondering uh, what we're Uh, in the heart of right now as a church in terms of our teaching, our study. uh, We're currently toward the back end of the book of Hebrews, a book that we've been working through since all the way back in September. And um, we do that from time to time through books of the Bible. Other times we we dive into various topical series when we see that there's a, a necessity to talk about certain things that people are questioning, curious about things happening in our culture. But in this moment, we happen to find ourselves in the book of Hebrews. If you're going, oh man, what a terrible time to come, right toward the back end of a series, have no fear, because following Easter Sunday, we're going to dive into another series on the book of Esther. If you've never read the book of Esther, it's a phenomenal book. It's, it's very intriguing Entertaining, it's action packed. You could easily turn the Book of Esther into a major motion picture, and you would not be bored with it. You can make it into one of those three-hour films, even. So, um, would love for you to come and check that out the Sunday following Easter. But for the next couple weeks, we're going to finish out the Book of Hebrews. Uh, but even if it is your first time, I think you'll uh, glean much from what we're going to dive into this morning. The Book of Hebrews, if you've never read it before, it's it's a curious book of the Bible. It's a book that puts on full display the reality that the Bible is not just a bunch of piecemealed stories that have been brought together haphazardly, but rather the Bible is one interwoving, overarching story of redemption with Jesus as the hero of the whole thing. The author of Hebrews argues that practically from start to finish. He's writing to a group of people who, in his original context, are saying, yes, Jesus is the Messiah, but they're being pressured from the outside to abandon Christianity. And so believing that an eye full of Jesus is what his battle-inflicted audience needs, he spends the first 10 chapters of this book of the Bible putting Jesus on full display in all of his goodness, glory, and grace. If you were around back in the fall, you experienced much of that as we basically just hosed you with the person and work of Jesus Christ for several months there. These last three chapters, which we're right in the heart of, represent a shift of sorts. The author of Hebrews wants us to understand that uh, all these glorious truths about Jesus, these truths that saturate the first 10 chapters of the book of Hebrews, are are meant to create in us a settled confidence in God and his promises. They're meant to, to compel us, to drive us, to keep trusting, to keep persevering, to keep enduring, to keep running toward Jesus with all that's within us as he awaits us with open arms at the finish line. Much of the last three chapters of this book of the Bible, you could say, function as a playbook for how to persevere by God's grace in the Christian life. We've seen in these past couple chapters that an indispensable key to running toward Jesus has to do with identity. Undoubtedly, the fuel for joyfully enduring to the finish line is the glorious reality of who you and I are in Jesus. That if you're a Christian, we talked about this back in the earlier parts of chapter 12, God is your father. You are not a spiritual orphan. You've been rescued out of the dumpsters of depravity. You've been given a home and a name. God is your Abba. He's your father, and you are his child. That gift of adoption, it's ours by grace alone, through faith alone, and Jesus alone. None of us can run well enough to earn our own adoption into the family of God. The good news of the gospel is that Jesus ran perfectly. He ran sinlessly on our behalf, and he died for imperfect, sinful runners like you and me. We cannot earn our adoption into God's family by running well, but we can soak in the identity that we've been given in Jesus and allow it to inform and fuel our running for his glory. This morning, the author of Hebrews is going to continue to heap more kindling onto the fire of our hearts um, with the intention of compelling us to run hard toward Jesus with joyful endurance. And so with that said, if you have a Bible, you can open up to Hebrews chapter 12. We'll be in the final section of chapter 12 verses 18 through 29. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one underneath one of the seats in the row in front of you. You can grab one of those Bibles and open up to this morning's passage. Um, If you don't own a Bible or the translation that you happen to to own is difficult to track with, then please take that Bible as the church's gift to you. Um, That would make us incredibly happy to know that uh, you are exploring the truth claims of Christianity, exploring the truths of the scriptures on your own time. Let me let me do this. Let me just pray for us, and, and we'll dive in, and we'll, we'll get rolling this morning. God, as we reach what many declare to be the climax of the book of Hebrews this morning, I pray that we would experience what the author longs for us to experience, that we would find all of the fuel that we need to lift our drooping hands, to strengthen our weak knees, to make straight paths for our feet, to run towards you with joyful endurance, Jesus, to strive for peace and holiness. Going back to last week's passage, pray that we would get a glimpse of all the promises that are ours in you, Jesus, and that we would be moved by that, that we would be moved to both gratitude and worship as we exit this place this morning. Father, would you work in our hearts by the power of your Holy Spirit? ask these things in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen. So last week, we, we spent a little bit of time talking about the indispensability of the church as it pertains to the perseverance, the endurance of the saints, running all the way into the arms of Jesus toward the finish line. That Part of what it means to be the church is helping one another to joyfully endure. And welcoming the help of others when we feel feeble, when we feel faint-hearted ourselves, when we're struggling to, to shed the sin and weight that clings so closely to us. Striving for peace and holiness together by God's grace. Resolving not to starve ourselves of the means of God's grace in our lives. Relinquishing our grip on functional saviors, those, those people and things that we run to other than God for rescue particularly when we find ourselves in seasons of weariness and heartache, choosing not to trade eternal promises for temporal pleasures like Esau, going back to last week's passage, choosing not to, quote-unquote, sell our souls for stew, but rather, like the saints of old represented in chapter 11, fixing our eyes on the glorious promises of God, such that those very promises radically impact the way that we look at and engage the present realities of our lives. Again, in this morning's passage, the author of Hebrews is going to douse us, you might say, with some unbelievable promises, heaping more and more kindling onto the fire of our hearts. He begins with these words in verse 18. He says, for you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages may be spoken to them, for they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned, quote-unquote. Indeed, verse 21, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. He, he starts off this section with the word for. In other words, he's saying in light of what's been declared in the previous section, What he's he's looking to do, he's about to give us, as you heard me pray, a reason to run with joyful endurance. He's about to give us a reason to lift our drooping hands. He's about to give us a reason to strengthen our weak knees. He's about to give us a reason to make straight paths for our feet, to strive for peace and holiness. And he leads out with this picture of Mount Sinai. He's taking us back to Mount Sinai. If, If you're not familiar with Uh, The story of God's people in the Old Testament, Mount Sinai was the mountain that Moses ascended to receive God's law. The Israelites had been freed from hundreds of years of slavery in Egypt, and Moses had led the people out of Egypt through the parting of the Red Sea and on into the wilderness, and the people found themselves at Mount Sinai. And according to Exodus chapter 19, we're told that God descended upon the mountain with thunder and lightning. Probably not hard to... Picture that in light of the weather outside today, right? You can kind of get your mind around that. But, but other descriptors, maybe not. God descended upon the mountain with thunder and lightning, with fire and smoke, in a thick cloud. And we're even told that the mountain itself trembled underneath Moses' feet. And God said, if anyone touches this mountain, they will be struck dead. That's how holy God is. And God called Moses and Aaron to the top of that mountain. Can you imagine Just put yourself in their shoes for a second. Uh, Are you sure about that, God? You really want us to to ascend this hill, so to speak? Can you imagine lightning and thunder, fire and smoke, a thick cloud surrounding you such that it's hard to see what's in front of you, the very mountain itself trembling beneath your feet? It's in the midst of that scene that God brought forth in speech the Ten Commandments, talking about a holy site, a place of fear, a place of trembling, place in which the, the holiness of God and the sinfulness of man is vividly clear. And yet a place that provided no power to overcome our sin. As the old saying says, To run and work the law commands, yet gives me neither feet nor hands. That's Mount Sinai. There's no power to overcome our sinfulness. Face to face with it, yet, yet no ability to do anything about it in the eyes of God. The author of Hebrews says... That's not the mountain to which you've come, Christian. He goes on to say in verse 22, but you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem and to innumerable angels in festal gathering and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven and to God, the judge of all and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant and to the sprinkled blood that's speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. He's saying, you haven't come to Mount Sinai. You've come to Mount Zion. If you, if you read the story of Israel in the Old Testament, you find that there was an earthly Zion that was part of Jerusalem. In fact, Mount Zion was so identified with the city of Jerusalem that the two names became interchangeable ultimately. That to journey to Jerusalem was to journey to Zion. The author of Hebrews what he's doing is he, he's contrasting the terror, the, the inapproachability of God that the Israelites felt at the foot of Mount Sinai with the glory and grace of the new covenant established in Jesus' blood. What he's been arguing for now for 12 chapters in their fullness. One of the things that I find fascinating is that there's a mountaintop moment that actually happens between Mount Sinai, the giving of the law, and what Jesus accomplished at Mount Zion, Jerusalem, where he died. There's this moment, this foreshadowing of what Jesus is going to accomplish in Matthew chapter 5. The the famous chapter where we encounter the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. Where we're told that seeing the crowds, Jesus went up on the mountain. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him. That that Jesus ascended a mountain in Matthew chapter 5 is not some insignificant trivial detail. Charles Spurgeon says it this way. He says, it was from a mountain that God proclaimed the law. He's talking about Mount Sinai. He says, It is on a mountain that Jesus expounds the law. Thank God it was not a mount around which boundaries had to be placed. It was not the mount that burned with fire from which Israel retired in fear. It was doubtless a mount all carpeted with grass and dainty with fair flowers, upon whose side the olive and fig flourished in abundance, except I love this, where the rocks pushed upward through the sod and eagerly invited their Lord to honor them by making them his pulpit and throne. In in going up the mountain in Matthew chapter five, the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus was making a statement about who he is. He was saying, in the same way that Moses met with God on Mount Sinai, you're meeting with God today. But it wasn't just an affirmation of Jesus's deity. Matthew also tells us that Jesus went up. On the mountain. He ascended. At Mount Sinai, the Lord descended upon the mountain. That's a way of saying that God is wholly other. He's transcendent. He has to stoop in order to interact with his creation. In Matthew 5, we're told that Jesus ascends the mountain, revealing his humanity. He's already stooped and taking on human flesh. And thus, he's not only God, he's fully man. He's the God-man. And while this is the glorious part of it all, this is how it connects to Hebrews chapter 12, while at Mount Sinai the people were told to keep their distance, in Matthew chapter 5, the people are welcome to draw near to God clothed in flesh. It's a pointing to what Jesus is going to accomplish at Calvary. That Jesus himself would actually become the fulfillment of everything that Mount Sinai represented, accomplishing what none of us could accomplish uh, through, through the perfect obedience and fulfillment of the law that was given on that mountain of terror so long ago. And amazingly, this is mind-blowing, Jesus consummated that fulfillment of Mount Sinai on Mount Zion, Jerusalem, the very place where he was crucified and buried and raised from the dead. In the words of one scholar, God's people no longer identify with the place that God's law was given, but with the place that God's law was fulfilled. At the foot of the cross. But the author of Hebrews is saying even more than that. If you come back to verse 22, when he speaks of Mount Zion, he's not talking about the earthly Zion, but rather the heavenly Zion. He's not talking about the earthly Jerusalem, but rather the heavenly Jerusalem. That in Christ, you and I are citizens of the eternal city of God, which is why Paul could say in Philippians 3.20, very famous verse, but our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. In Revelation 21, you heard James read from uh, the later parts of Revelation earlier this morning. The Apostle John is given a glimpse of that eternal city where where we're told, I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. You have this language, not of us floating away to heaven as chubby winged angel babies, but rather heaven coming to earth. A heavenly city where everything sad will come untrue and will be with God forever. Perfect intimacy between us and Him. God's people and God's forever place and a forever covenant with Him under His forever blessings. As John goes on to say in the next verse of Revelation 21 And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man, and He will dwell with them, and they will be His people, and God Himself will be with them as their God. No more hiding, no more running, no fear of being banished from his presence because this is no Mount Sinai that we're looking forward to. This is Mount Zion, the place of innumerable angels in festal gathering, as the author of Hebrews says. More angels than we could possibly count, singing the praises of God's goodness, glory, and grace forever. And here's the crazy thing. Just a few minutes ago, you joined them in their song not just the angels, but also, as the author of Hebrews says, the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. The Christ-loving, Christ-following saints who have gone before us. That in Christ, we've been brought into this eternal family spanning the generations of redemptive history. Kent Hughes says it this way, and let this encourage you if you have a loved one who's gone on to be with the Lord. There is an amazing solidarity, he says, between the church triumphant in heaven and the church militant here on earth. We are all the body of Christ. The family is never broken. It, keeps, it simply keeps growing, he says, and going on and on. A bulging assembly of rich first sons and daughters. Is that not good news? Mount Zion, the heavenly Jerusalem, the eternal home of myriads of angels, the eternal home of God's redeemed, that in Christ, we've also come to God, the judge of all, the author of Hebrews says. And and the beauty of the gospel is we have nothing to fear because Jesus bore our judgment. There is no wrath for those who are in Christ because he drank the cup of God's wrath down to the dregs on our behalf. Hallelujah. In our place, he stood condemned as the old hymn says, so that we might stand in the presence of God with no condemnation and enjoy making much of him forever. He says, we've been brought to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, that the heavenly Jerusalem will be a place of righteousness and perfection because you and I, along with God's redeemed throughout the ages, will be the glorified versions of ourselves. And lastly, but certainly not least, He says, we've come to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel, that that Jesus is the foundation, the cornerstone, and the centerpiece of the heavenly Jerusalem, of Mount Zion. He is the mediator of a new covenant established in his blood, a covenant that draws you and I near to God. That Abel's blood couldn't redeem us, the author of Hebrews says. But Jesus' blood can and has redeemed us. He has purchased our redemption. It's one more time that the author of Hebrews is triumphantly declaring Jesus is greater. That in Christ, you and I, we have not come to Mount Sinai. Praise be to God. To a mountain that we're not allowed to touch. That is not our God. We've come to Mount Zion. Into the glorious presence of the living God. Again, coming back to that old saying... To run and work, the law commands, yet gives me neither feet nor hands. That's Mount Sinai. But better news, the gospel brings. It bids me fly and gives me wings. That's Mount Zion. The gospel actually empowers what it commands in us through the indwelling Holy Spirit. I thought about this as as I was kind of working through this passage. and, And I was just awakened to the reality that If these verses don't give us reason to run with joyful endurance, if these verses don't give us reason to lift our drooping hands, to strengthen our weak knees, to make straight paths for our feet, if these verses don't give us reason to strive for peace and holiness, then we might as well pack it up and call it a day. I don't know what will. A heavenly city where everything sad will come untrue and we will be with God forever, basking in his presence, unhindered. Coming back to the beginning of chapter 11 of the book of Hebrews, faith is the grabbing hold of that future as though it were present, such that it creates something of substance in us as we we do face the present realities of life. That's what faith is. Going back to last week, To bring that example of Esau back into the picture, if our hope is rooted in the promises of verses 22 through 24, it makes a proverbial bowl of stew seem a little less glorious in comparison, does it not? Such that the author of Hebrews goes so far as to close out this chapter with a warning. He says, if all these promises are true and you reject them, woe to you. It's the final of several warning passages that are sprinkled throughout this book of the Bible And it begins in verse 25. He says, See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refuse him who warned them on earth, he's talking about the encounter with God under the old covenant. He says, Much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. He's talking about the encounter with God under the new covenant. Verse 26 At that time, when God gave the law at Mount Sinai, at that time his voice shook the earth, the very mountain itself. But now he has promised, yet once more, and I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken. That is, things that have been made in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. He's pointing back to an Old Testament book of the Bible, the book of Haggai. And what he's essentially saying is, when God gave the law at Mount Sinai, the earth shook. When Jesus returns, all things will be shaken. All all other so-called gods, all other so-called kingdoms, all who reject the kingship of Jesus will face his coming judgment and what will remain will be God with his forever people in his forever place experiencing his forever blessings. All those glorious realities that you read about in verses 22 through 24, God's redeemed together with the angels basking in the presence of God forever in the heavenly Jerusalem, the city of God. It's quite unbelievable. If you're not a Christian, you can become a citizen of that eternal city right now as you sit in your seat. All you have to do is bring nothing more than your sin and the empty hands of faith to the foot of the cross of Jesus Christ. To declare, I'm a sinner, which separates me from you, God. But in Jesus, everything has been accomplished to reconcile me to yourself and to make me a citizen of this eternal city. And so I come to you, Jesus, trusting that you lived the life I could never live, that you died the death that I deserve to die, and that you overcame my greatest enemies of sin and death through your triumphant resurrection. So if you're not a Christian, I would implore you to come to the foot of the cross of Jesus Christ and receive him as Savior and King this morning and become a citizen with the rest of the saints of this eternal city. And if you are a Christian, he goes on to say, verse 28, therefore, Let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. For our God is a consuming fire. He says, God is worthy of two things in light of the gospel. One, our gratitude. And two, our worship. And I think the two are really intertwined with each other at the end of the day. The first question for us are we grateful that God made a way for us to become citizens of his eternal city, his unshakable kingdom? I think if, if you come to the foot of the cross um, expecting uh, that, that you deserve the, the, what Jesus accomplished for you with some sense of entitlement, then you'll never express gratitude. But if you understand that salvation comes by grace alone, through faith alone, and you truly soak in the grace of God that's been gifted to you, I think that creates in us a humble confidence and an expression of gratitude. It's a call to thank him. And not just to thank him, but to worship him. One of the things that I think gets uh, so misconstrued in a passage like this is that God is no less holy today than he was in his descent upon Mount Sinai. There was a heresy known as Marcionism in the early church, where Marcion attempted to dissect the God of the Old Testament and declare him to be a different God than the God of the New Testament. And the author of Hebrews says, no, that, that's not remotely the case. It's not that God is any less holy today than he was in his descent upon Mount Sinai. It's simply that Jesus has made a way for us to stand in the presence of holiness. That by way of the finished work of Jesus Christ, mind-blowing to me, you and I can stand in the 5,000 degree centigrade holiness of God and not be incinerated in an instant, but rather enjoy making much of him forever. That's what the gospel affords us. So praise be to Jesus, both the Lion of Judah and the Lamb who was slain. As the Lamb, he speaks a better word than than the blood of Abel. And as the Lion, he is worthy of our joyful, reverent submission. Worship your king is what the author of Hebrews is essentially declaring whose kingdom cannot be shaken. And if he's not your king, bow down to him even now and receive him as your savior and king.